Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. If you could trust your bank to do the right thing every time, what would you want your bank to offer you? Tandem CEO Ricky Knox wants to build a banking service the same way he listens to Spotify. Something that enhances our lives without any effort. In this episode, we talk to Ricky about his digital bank Tandem and their recent partnership with House of Fraser, his impressive fintech career and the future of banking. We also talked to Ruth Hancock, Chief Customer Officer, who says her job is listening to customers, then translating that into what Tandem's building. First, I'll hand over to Jason to interview with Ricky. Today, I've got Ricky Knox, the CEO of Tandem, and a, uh, a fintech legend, having founded both Small World Financial Services and Asimo. So um, I guess that's quite a journey, Ricky. You know, you've been in financial services in fintech for, for quite a while. Can you talk to us a little bit about, about that, where you've come from? Sure. So, I mean, my fintech journey begins well before it was called fintech. I started off my entrepreneurial journey as a, a, to start a telecoms business called GSM Systems and built up a business that was bringing some of the first mobile networks to Africa and to the developing world by recycling telecoms equipment. So my sort of weird blend of stuff is I've always been interested in tech. Uh, I was a VC before and investing in sort of disruptive tech and like to do things that I can get out of, the bed, out of bed in the morning feeling proud of what I do. So got really turned on by the sort of developing development angle there on on that business. The next business I did was was actually my first fintech business was pre-small world was something called uh, Clarity FX, which was a foreign exchange software business. It was basically trying to stop the banks ripping people off on foreign exchange. So we built a uh, piece of software that could identify you know, what margins a bank were charging uh, to their clients and, and, and save people loads of money. And that I was lucky and we sold that actually 14 months after we founded it for oh, wow. a fair amount of money, which was timing and, and sort of happenstance, which is often an important part of things. We actually had a, I was at a FinTech dinner last night where we had a guy who was a football statistician who um, his Danish team sort of came fifth in the European League or whatever because basically they played the stats and his point is football's a game of luck and not a skill because it's low scoring and you know and his lesson for entrepreneurs was you know you, you've got to be lucky it's not just about how good you are uh, i.e. when things are going really well don't go I'm not going to change anything because you're probably doing well because you're lucky, not because you're a genius. Yeah. Um, which was a good message, I thought, for the fintech audience uh, there <laughs> in the room at the time. But anyway, I was very lucky with the first one. That enabled me to, so gave me an exit and enabled me to start a small fund, Hexagon Partners, which basically invests in uh, early stage fintech stuff. And uh, from Hexagon Partners, we were looking around, figuring out what we wanted to do around something in financial services and technology, which was, which is, which at the time, you know, we defined as sort of technology disruption in retail financial services. Our theory was things were getting disintermediated around the edge. Technology is going to play a really important role. And we wanted somewhere where we could make an impact as well, so social impact. So, so uh, remittances came up as, a, as an interesting area to have a look at. And I can truthfully say I knew absolutely nothing about remittances. I now, having invested sort of 10 years of my life, know quite a lot about the sector. So our, our very simple thesis was regulation sweeping through this sector. Technology is going to make it much easier to send money around the world. So let's go in and buy a load of fint, uh, buy a load of remittance companies, put them on a new platform, make it a hell of a lot easier, and hopefully make it a lot cheaper for people to send money. That was a little bit harder than it sounded when we sort of decided to set it up, uh, and we learned. So, but, and what's the what's your kind of motivation there? Because I guess you know a lot of people listening or watching might think, hey, if I had a big exit, 
I'd be lying on a beach somewhere or I'd be, you know, off doing stuff. If you, you know, if you don't have to create that stuff, if you don't have to take on those challenges, what, what led you there? Well, I did take a break first, but okay. uh, <laughs> first he said, but, uh, but no, and I think also we were in a situation where, um, you know, we had a pot of capital that was you know, also reasonably early in my career, sure. you know, exciting to go out and do something with that. Yeah. Um, and, and so having built, built uh, you know, having built Small World, we then um, in 2000, so we actually started sort of Hexagon and then Small World in 2005, which as I said, was sort of pre the coining of FinTech as a term. In 2010, we sold a large chunk of it to a to private equity house. Uh, I exited the business with one of the other founders, Michael. Uh, and we actually initially thought we're gonna go into a completely different business. We wanna wanna found something else and do something fun around this area we're getting. And when we came back to it, it was like, we constructively spent seven years learning all about this industry. And all we'd really done was taken it from agent-based to direct. We had one of the largest direct businesses in the world that was sending about $5 billion a year of, of remittances, but it was primarily over the phone, a bit on the internet, you know, nothing on mobile. And you know, we were like, ah, well, it's definitely going. And actually, we saw a uh, US um, player, Zoom, which had been in the, in the wilderness basically since 1998 when it was founded and, and, and well, in 1994, I think, where there was just no tech adoption. The adoption curve hadn't hit it yet. And suddenly it was taking off. And so we were like, ah, we really should go and do this thing in, uh, in remittances a little bit longer. And you know, a be able to bring the price down further because we could get about three percent. But when you're running a call center, you can't really get it down to one percent or half a percent. It's just you know, the, the cost base per per, per transaction is too high. Um, so let's do this properly, mobile first. You know, go out there and build a uh, you know a really slick set of remittance rails. Build and, the whole, and this is Asimo. This is Asimo. So and so we built uh, built Asimo. Uh, you know, built the tech platform from scratch, uh, which was thorny but fun. And um, and now you know Asimo is is one of you know and the funny thing is actually when we started the small world uh, remittances were really sexy there was loads of M and in the sector then it got deeply deeply unsexy and everyone really hated the sector for a while and then by the time we got back around to Asimo suddenly remittances were sexy and interesting again and you see Remitly's just raised a load of money you know we were in part responsible for the money that was raised um, uh, by one of our competitors we went to Excel when we were like totally pre-seed and said hey, look we think this remittance thing's really cool and they said that's awesome what's your revenue and we we're like well about 2,000 pounds last month <laughs> and, uh, and, and they were like oh uh, yeah, it's a little early. Is there anybody else in your sector? And so we were like, well, this guy Ishmael sort of kicking off. He's still pretty small, but he's about a million of revenue. Uh, we'd actually tried to buy Ishmael's business uh, when we were at Small World. And uh, two months later, it was announced that Excel had invested oh, 40 no. million pounds into, uh, <laughs> into Ishmael's business. Which so was what, what do you think about the remittance sector now? Because obviously you've got you know, a number of larger players. You've got a lot of people fighting for the big corridors. You've got Western Union, the kind of the big dog in the room. Like, where does that, where's that going as a, as a sector? Yeah, I think well, we at, at Asimo, what we've been brewing up, and 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 this is I don't want to uh, careful to make it a world exclusive here on your uh, fintech podcast, but but essentially, I mean, it's like nearly three years ago, uh, Facebook approached Asimo and um, approached Mike and I to offer Mike the role of of sort of head of financial services at Facebook, and uh, said that they saw the future being instant sort of peer to peer remittances over sure. their Facebook network. We 
definitely see, saw that opportunity at the time and, um, and think, that's, uh, think that's really big. I think one of the challenges for us was Facebook really didn't understand you know, it's a, it's a very one sector company run by a guy and they were worked in working sector. And it was, you know, we spent some time with Mark Zuckerberg and it was really, really clear that he just, he was sort of dismissing all the, um, all the stuff that was gonna, gonna make this hard and saying, look, you guys should deliver in no time and you'll have this done in four months. And we were saying, Meh, you know, so. Um, and what uh, was that like working with uh, Mark Zuckerberg? It was pretty interesting. I mean, it was Mike who did the who did the workshop with uh, uh, with Mark. So you'd have to ask him. But no, he said he was actually pretty modest about stuff. But he did have a very sort of clear view, which wasn't very well informed by um, by knowledge of the sector in this case. So um, you know, they launched probably a year. They said they were going to launch the whole thing by that July September. We ended up turning them down on the investment, but um, but then they did actually about. A year and a half, two years later, launched domestic U.S. remittances. Sure. Uh, so pay 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 by Facebook. They've just announced, although they haven't done it yet, that they're going to do this internationally as well. Yeah, I've seen the uh, the banking license or the the license. Yeah, they had an e money licensing in in in, uh, in Ireland. But I think the um, you know that's that's certainly the direction we think things are going next. It's actually something. You know, we're, 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 we're doing it tandem as well, but, you know, really just taking the friction out of the process, making it much more one click, mobile number based. So it's just a lot easier to, um, you know, rather than having extensive setup process for each beneficiary, sure. the person who receives the money, the guy at the other end, you know, uh, receives it into a wallet, can put it into his account if he wants to or not. And it just make, makes all that a lot, lot, uh, takes a lot of the friction out of the process. So, so, so do you think a lot of that payments or remittance will really move? to the WhatsApp, Facebook, kind of where people are, where they're interacting? Yeah, I don't know whether it actually will move into and onto those platforms, but I think if you look at what WeChat have done with a red envelope service, I think that, that it will become as easy as that to remit money. I think the, you know, and red envelope's really quite indicative because, you know, it really took off because as micropayments, more as a game, and but due to its gamification, the gambling angle, sure. than, than it did because people wanted to use it as a way to pay one, from one person to another. Venmo, on the flip side, which is a specific network just for sending money, has been a massive success and really does has cracked the peer-to-peer thing. On the flip side, hasn't cracked monetization because it's got no international element. I think the the international Venmo, which is really where we want to take uh, Asimo next, is is an exciting uh, next evolution in that market. I think there's a lot of chat about blockchain. I'm not sure in in what is essentially a frictionless foreign exchange market. What role? Uh, oh, and by the way, very high volume and very high trade volume isn't actually best suited to to blockchain as a um, as, as a mode of uh, of neutral transfer. Uh, you know, Ripple are obviously working on that with their own coin, but uh, you know, I, I I think blockchain is super important, definitely a seminal uh, technological shift for us. But I I'm not sure that it's as relevant as people think it is to remittances, uh, where I do feel that 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 there is a, another big shift to be taken in terms of the technology. You know, Zoom, even Remitly, and the other guys out there, it's really internet money transfer mm. businesses. They may have a mobile front end, but the but the paradigm is very much not a a social one, right. um, uh, so I think there's a, there's a there's a next step to go there, and and we'll see whether Facebook ends up owning it or whether in fact other people end up trying to buy their own, you know, Snapchat wants sure. its own money transfer, and 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 we end up partnering with them. So Interesting. We'll so it seems like there's a long journey still to go there. There's all kinds of interesting things on remittances. What led you to uh, to found Tandem? 
So uh, when I stepped away from Asimo, actually I'd promised my family, back to your beach question, uh, a little bit of time on the beach. We went to Bali for a year, well, it was meant to be three months, ended up being a year and a half. And when I was out there, I was kind of thinking, you know, I want to, I'd love to start another thing, but uh, I've done quite a lot of things. And so I want it to be something big and more like, you know, my, uh, you know. Legacy. M- yeah, my legacy sounds really wanky, doesn't it? <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, something, something large, impactful, that has social impact, that is able to, um, you know, actually transform uh, a decent number of people's lives. And it keeps me busy for five or 10 years, not, you know, something I get bored of after two years, which is one of my failings. Um, you know, we'd been working around fintech and with Hexing, we'd invested in a load of different stuff around the edges of, of financial services. And it just felt like, you know, banking was so broken in the middle and that particularly the the sort of the morals and ethics of banking you know which sits in such an important and sort of um, uh, pivotal role in people's lives wasn't uh, it wasn't being conducted in, in the right way sort of in a way banking of old had uh, you know sort of had this sort of patrician feel to it mm. where while it was uh, incredibly difficult, uh, didn't work very well. You felt like the banker sitting in your local branch really sort of had your best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. You actually knew the community and what has happened in the sort of, I won't even say, because it, you know, to even call it a techno- technological disruption would be a bit rude uh, to technological disruption itself. Uh, but in, in the process of moving away from that manual and personal relationship to uh, cut costs essentially for sure. the banks, um, they lost any of those, uh, a lot of those values, which were about actually looking at after the customer. And instead, you know, they still had some trust from the customer in terms of the trust that belongs to, you know, that comes with large stone buildings and not losing their money. Sure. Uh, they'd really lost the trust that these guys were actually out for me in any way at all, very much just out for, out for the bank. So felt that, there was a place there for, and you know, we sort of call it a good bank. And when we set it out, felt there was a place for for a bank that genuinely was uh, trying to do the right thing for customers, trying to uh, improve their lives rather than you know maximize profit. And you know, there's been a big backlash, I think, socially. And and, and it's interesting because I think there's wasn't intentional, but I think there's a generation that's growing up now that's that's really questioning some of the you know, this, the system works this way and it's just how it goes. And it's totally cool that the bankers really want massive bonuses and that's all that motivates sure. them. Uh, that's just what people in banks do. Um, and, and really starting to say, well, actually, no, this, this thing should be looking out for me and get, have my back and, and helping me out. I should be able to trust my bank to sure. recommend the right thing, especially since money is incredibly complex. You know, when I go to my doctor, I don't expect my doctor to, you know, do open heart surgery because he's going to get the 900 quid versus the, you know, uh, 20p you'll get for the pack of strepsils. I expect him to actually, you know, exercise his Hippocratic oath and say, Ricky, you're fucking fine. Stop moaning. And so we really felt that there was sort of room for almost a sort of Hippocratic, uh, you know, set of morals uh, around around banking. So, so, that's so, really so how does that do. sort of you know, I get the values and I get the, um, you know, the change from the, the mechanized mass market, here's your statement and, you know, we're going to try and sell you some more stuff. But how is that voiced? You know, what does that mean in terms of then the products and services that you, you release? Because I guess we've seen some people look to focus on 
saving people money, getting discounts, group buying, other people on sort of intelligent financial services stuff and helping people get from payday to pay, payday. You know, there's a variety of ways you could take it, I guess. Um, you know, where's, where's Tandem going? So I suppose if you, if you were to take as a, as a principle that what we're building is a purpose-driven, uh, purpose-led organization, um, then the question is, you know, if you could trust your bank and they were doing the right thing by you every time, what would you want your bank to do for you? And um, it comes back to, you know, the, the piece around the way that a whole lot of industries have transformed, which is that there is a, there is a lot of friction in every step of a financial services journey. And when you look at it with detail and everybody says this, you know, nobody wants to buy a financial services product. It's utterly uninteresting. This is actually something that should be um, a, a facility that takes place in the background that you never have to even interact with. And if you trusted somebody absolutely with your financial services, you could have a facility that just provided the loan when you needed it, checked it was affordable with your income, you know, uh, put it in, you know, moved it away when, you know, put some money aside when, when it knew an event was coming up or even just when you had extra money. You know, all those things could actually be completely automated. In fact, with data and modern systems, that's really easy. Um, so, you know, we would like to, you know, we see a day in the not that distant future when when you don't really you you trust your bank and therefore you don't really interact with your financial services you don't buy products you don't choose a product you don't have that moment when you go is it credit card can it be ours to get a personal loan for this or do i do i get car finance or just stick on the credit card you know all those stupid decisions which you know really require a spreadsheet and a, at least an a level in math as we said in our recent press release you know shouldn't actually, uh, you know, there shouldn't be things that you're being taxed with. Like, sure. you should be out enjoying doing what you enjoy, you know, and enjoying your life. And I think people are making baby steps in this direction, but um, but we really want to build, you know, banking as a service or banking as a solution um, in the same way that, you know, I now listen to Spotify and, you know, uh, my music experience, I don't have a buying experience anymore, which I actually hated anyway, because I was bad at CD shops. Music choosing that led me to get my CD stuck in the CD player for six months because, I, you know, again, I found it difficult to tell which, which CD did I want. I kind of, until I heard it, I didn't really know. And I certainly couldn't be bothered to get 12 out and try each one. So, you know, that experience has gone from one that was painful in a number of areas and to one where I now have, you know, with Honest and Spotify kind of music in every room and, you know, there's radio going on and, and, and it should feel a little bit like that to do your banking. It shouldn't be any effort. Maybe not quite as joyful as listening to Spotify, but, you know, but it should, it should be a lot more akin to that. So, so where do you think the, the sort of aggregation of that experience happens? Because a lot of people have spoken about the, the disaggregation of financial services. Asimo comes along and pulls out a little piece. Uh, Betterment, you know, uh, uh, Moneybox. There are lots of people, I guess, who are looking to uh, currently isolating specific journeys. And I guess with PSD2 and open banking coming along, there's also the opportunity for third-party aggregators and everything else to happen. Where does, where does Tandem fit in that? Are you a, a monoline bank, a bank that has you know, a full suite of products? Do you fit into, into other services and plug other pieces in? What's the future hold? So we believe in the re-aggregation of banking. And if you look at disruption cycles, so look at, look at it's a great one, retail. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, and actually I was a good friend, had made a load of money on U-Switch, actually, ironically, on the aggregation side. 
built a super successful group of uh, of retail sites that were like rabbithutch.com and other stuff, each one of them having sales of a million pounds. But he had 5,000 of them. And actually, he was making a hell of a lot of money uh, because, you know, internet retail was really going to the long tail. Uh, you look at where internet retail is today, it's not in the freaking long tail, you know. So, you know, hey, hey, you know, hey, you're going to disaggregate retail. Yeah, yeah, sure. Amazon's really disaggregating the hell out of retail. And it is at some level because it's, it's but, but actually what's happened here is you had disaggregation. You had marketplaces sort of heading this way. And then what you've seen is this reaggregation trend where actually people can't be arsed. And this is the key. There's a layer of trust. There's a veneer of trust, which is, by the way, the banking license is super important. In, and then there's access to your own and other people's products, but under a easy buying process where you've taken out the, the layers of hassle for the customer. And, and to some extent, you're managing service quality for those, you know, for, for those in, in Amazon's case, for those retailers. So you, know, you have the, the appearance of choice and, and, and really do have choice in terms of product catalog because there's no way Amazon would stock all this stuff that's in Mar Amazon Marketplace. And yet, you've got you know one provider who you go to and and does all of it for you. And oh my God, you know such a large percentage of the world go to the same retailer who does it all for you. So you know I I think that we'll see a similar pattern in financial services. I think it's the drivers are much stronger. You know, I, I take less enjoyment in in buying financial services than I do in buying retail stuff. Uh, I, um, which drives to, to sink to reaggregation. You know, if I really enjoyed buying every single one, like, like I, even records, like you probably got some record fans here who, who like spending all day looking at vinyl. There are so few people who love looking at different financial services products. Give me a room, bank branch, full of financial services brochures and, you know, find me 10 people in the UK who want to hang out there and browse through <laughs> them all day. You're just, you're going to really struggle. So, you know, I think the, the forces are much greater there for, for re-aggregation than disaggregation. I mean, you think about, you know, I, I found myself in a position about four years ago where I re-aggregated personally and, and put everything with the bank that will remain nameless. But I had a whole lot of loans on Zopa. I had investments over here. I probably had 23 financial services providers. And what I realized is that I'd actually lost the contact details that, you know, even the, any record of about I had two ICEs that I literally didn't know existed. And, you know, when I went back to my files, I realized they were there. And I was like, this is, this is a bit messed up. You know, it's not like I got that much money to be, you know, spreading my stuff around. And I'm giving myself basically a full-time job to look after all this stuff. Like, and I don't enjoy that job. So sure. why would I want to do that? So now, unfortunately, you know, so I, I opted to pay 15 times as much and earn half the return on my investments just to get it in one place. So I could see it on one, sadly, piece of paper right sure. now. They can't even give it to me in one digital interface. But, you know, and, and I, I genuinely believe that for most people, particularly people who don't have that much investable income, you know, or investable assets, they just want simplicity. They don't want a disaggregated world where they've gotten absolutely the latest basis points deal on this, that, and the other. Sure. They, want, they want one place, but they want one place where they can... They can have choice and they can have the opportunity to go and look at the market and check they're getting a good deal. But on the other hand, to have 
really easy hassle-free journeys curated for them in their in their place so that's what tandem will be but i guess that the the challenge there for for the platform play i mean it took a year for apple to launch the app store after the iphone it was seven years before facebook connect came out there's always this you know question of driving it's a two-sided marketplace on one hand people want to put things on a platform where there's millions of customers on the other hand you need products already integrated in order to draw the customers in so where do you where do you focus on off with? You focus on having, uh, on the basis that the convenience is more important than the price to most people. You start off by having at least one product in each category, whether it's your own or other people's, that's, 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 that works really well, and having a slightly more effortful access to a broader selection of products. So that's that's what we'll do at Tandem. You can see whole of market, but but it won't be, we're not making a whole of market easy for you, sure. uh, but we will try in every category to integrate something into the financial services journey. Because what we're really talking about is about making that whole journey through your, uh, through your life, through that life event that you're, you know, and I don't mean marriage, those are the, you know, buying a house ones that the Barclays thinks about, but the day-to-day events, the end of the month, the, you know, the wife's birthday, the holiday that you've got, you know, the, making those events, easy from a financial services journey perspective, totally effortless, and kind of almost you can switch on autopilot when you trust us enough, and we'll just manage the whole thing for you. So where's, where's Tandem in that journey? Obviously, you've got your banking Tandem. license, you're through you know, mobilization, you're you know, there. When, when, will we, when, when can I sign up? You can. Well, you can sign up as a co-founder now. So you know, our co-founders have, uh, many of them have our app. Uh, some of them have credit cards and uh, loans and, and, and savings accounts open today. Um, we sort of launched into co-founders in October with that selection of products, which answers mm-hmm. your product question, and we are improving the app. Uh, we'll release it to the public when it's ready, you know, but definitely uh, in the first half of this year. Well, that's great. So um, the co-founder thing, you know, I love. Uh, talk, talk us through the kind of co-founder crowdfunding thing. How has that worked? Is that a, you know, is that, I guess it aligns well with the values. Is that something you're, yeah. you're going to be continuing? It's, I mean, our co-founder thing was a sort of uh, an idea in the middle of the night when my daughter woke me up. Uh, I think has worked super well for, for us. Um, also, frankly, getting a load of you know enthusiasts who are excited about the business. Both, and interesting when you look at our, because all of our crowdfunders had to be co-founders in order to crowd, do the crowdfunding. Okay. So um, uh, those people um, basically have formed, there are a couple of super engaged group in our overall co-founder base. One is, some of the crowdfunders um, who are who tend to do a lot more of the sort of interacting. We've got a social hub where they go in, a social media community where they go in and comment on stuff and see the latest, you know, uh, screens in our app and see everything that's going on. And so those guys, the, the a lot of the crowdfunding guys engage a lot that way. And then there's another group who engage more physically, come to our events, come to these break at breakfasts, come to our uh, evening events and do that stuff. Um, so there's sort of two very engaged groups who behave quite differently in terms of the way they engage with us, but both of them are equally valuable. Mm, that's great. Uh, I guess the, the biggest piece of news I've seen about you guys recently has been the House of Fraser investment, um, which made me stand back and go, House of Fraser? Would I put that brand with Tandem? Yeah. You know, um, like fascinated to hear from you how that came about, what's that about, how do they align? How does House of Fraser align with Tandem? Yeah, so I mean... First of all, say we're super excited about this. Obviously, we wouldn't have done it if we weren't excited about it. Uh, it does a couple different things for us. I mean, you know, when you look at the, 
um, the routes other people have taken. You know, if you look at Adam's route, they've taken on a large bank. That was something we had, you know, sort of some issues with internally. Uh, didn't feel like a good match for what we we're trying to do. Interestingly, retailers in general, but House of Fraser in particular, actually has a really strong set of values around, of course, retailers always put the customer first and take that incredibly seriously. Like, you know, you, you'd struggle to find a board meeting where they're not totally obsessing about customers. You'd struggle to find a bank board meeting where they mention a customer. Um, you know, so I think there's a there's a there's a piece there, and you look at actually their integrity and the other things that they've got. You know, in terms of their their core values, there's actually a lot that align very closely with our value set. So I think that was an important piece of it for us. But but at a very high level, you know, we're a new business into the into the market. House of Fraser genuinely want to do a better job for their customers. They want to engage more, but they also want you know, the idea of tandem is that we're actually going to help our customers and, and you know, they're going to be better off and their money's going to be better managed and their lives are going to be easier and they're going to be happier at the end of the day. And that's something that House of Fraser genuinely have on right at the top of their list is what they want to do to their customers. They also would love them to come to the store a little more often because House of Fraser is a treat store. It's like your Harrods if you're in a city that yeah. doesn't have a Harrods um, and they're in 50 largest cities in the UK. So it has relatively infrequent visits um, uh, from its customers compared to your grocery store or whatever sure. it may be. And, uh, and so they're keen to increase engagement and frankly, yeah, make their customers better off. And so they happen to have you know, very high footfall, a couple of million loyal customers uh, who are actually on their loyalty program, you know, nearly half a million people have a House of Fraser credit card in their pocket. And, uh, you know, we have very few customers, a great product, uh, great ability to uh, do human data design and, 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 and produce things that, that, that are beautiful and really easy to use for our customers. There was a really nice marriage there of, of, of A, uh, a lot of potential customers for Tandem, uh, who doesn't have that many right now, and a, a great service that can meet the needs around uh, helping their customers for, for House of Fraser. Prior to, to having some discussions with them, some partnership discussions, they've been going on for a year or so, um, you know, I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have connected really the way that House of Fraser feels internally and their values with, with their external brand. I mean, it's kind of an a brand that's been around for a long time. Yeah. I was aware of that, you know. Uh, and I guess that was my question, the kind of demographic overlap, you know, the digital yeah. banking meets, because I, you know, probably unfairly, I see it as like an older person's store or, or something. There you like go. That. Well, to some extent, unfair. every store is older person's, but you know, <laughs> uh, but no, but, uh, but I think the, uh, first of all, the, you know, their demographic is, is not that much uh, that much older than our demographic, and also they're keen to move their demographic uh, and 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 penetrate a younger demographic as any right. long-lived business is trying to do at all sure. times. I think there's also a piece where when you look at Tandem, and you know when you know we sort of get cast with the millennial bucket quite often. Both Matt, I mean Matt and I are sort of statistics trained and much much more interested in much smaller segments than than 30 to 35 year olds. Yeah, yeah. That isn't that doesn't have enough commonality to either be a reason to actually uh, make that an easy group to communicate with or be to design product around or, you know, so we're much, we have much more of a behavioral cut in how we, uh, in how we assess our, our customers and that behavioral cut ends up with a, a sort of age 
almost a, a sort of chi-squared if you're feeling geeky rather than a uh, um, you know rather than a normal distribution and the chi-squared probably peaks somewhere around 35 but um, and actually tails off very rapidly at the beginning of because actually managing your finances on an automated basis is not very exciting when you're 17 years old you know <laughs> and so actually um, does match better than you might think we still have people up in the 75 year old 75 plus who we deem to be you know, tech savvy enough on the right platforms and uh, and and interested enough uh, and with the right behaviors to be potential customers. So, you know, I, I think I think anybody's oversimplifying and and a little bit in you know nineteen eighty five marketing speak when they say that they're targeting a particular age range. That's or just not very good at marketing. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> well, before I let you go, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your team. I mean, uh, I guess one of the things that you hear that digital banks often offer as a, you know, in that uh, business case and pitch to investors uh, is the fact that there's a, a much lower cost base compared to a traditional bank. You know, how many people do you have? What's, what are the plans for that? Yeah, so one level will always have a much lower cost base than a traditional bank. I don't think that's a, uh, a primary driver for our success. But it is, you know, I, I, I've definitely seen that in pitch decks for other people. That's not, um, wouldn't be something I'd major on. It's more about growth than cost. Uh, although it's a story that might resonate for an old school banker. I think the, um, uh, so we've got, uh, our team is a, a real mix um, of people who've never been in banking with a tech background, uh, people who've been in fintech, but never, you know, never, never gone anywhere near banking and some, you know, really experienced bankers. And we think that combination is super important. Um, I did say, as you mentioned before, in, in an interview that I, I genuinely believe if you're going to reinvent an industry, you have to understand it first. So I, you know, I think when I was 26, I would have told you that, you know, I knew everything and therefore, you know, what the hell extra could I possibly learn? I don't believe that anymore. Uh, I think people have an enormous amount of experience and a lot of stuff to add. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, we've, we've built a team which combines, as we see it, sort of the best of fintech and tech with, you know, the best of banking. It's been super hard. We've had to, you know, search for a needle in a haystack to find a banker with bankers with the right values, bankers with, you know, uh, enough of a tech orientation. Uh, but but we think that um, uh, we think we found those guys. And so we're pretty happy with where we've got to. Well, thanks. I guess we should end with with you signposting people to where they can find out more about Tandem, can sign up, can become a co-founder. Yeah, absolutely. If you go to uh, Tandem's website, tandem.co.uk, and uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but it's a podcast. So if you want to use my referral code, which is QK740, get in there and, uh, and sign yourself up. QK740, there you go. <laughs> well, thanks, Ricky. Cheers, thanks um, and thanks for, uh, for spending time with us. Cheers. See you soon. Thanks for that, Jason. Brilliant interview, Ricky, as well. Now a word from our sponsors before our interview with Ruth. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. 
Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome back to Fintech Insider Interviews. I'm here with Ruth Handcock, the Chief Customer Officer of Tandem. Thanks for joining us on the show. No problem. So you were the Global Finance Director of Bacardi. Is that as fun as it sounds? It was pretty fun. We had a free bar in the office. You could help yourself whenever you wanted. You had cocktail lessons when you first joined the company. So yeah, pretty cool company. Um, but also a great place to learn how to build brands. So actually the spirits industry is very much about brands and how you communicate with customers. So pretty good grounding in that too. Oh, very cool. So what, what tore you away from that to come build Tandem? What, what excited you about um, being on the Tandem journey? Funnily enough, meeting Ricky. So I often describe it as sort of the ultimate case of FOMO that I couldn't, having met Ricky and him tell me all about his vision for setting up a bank, I couldn't quite turn down the opportunity to go and help him do it. I couldn't bear seeing Tandem existing three years from then and not having been a part of it. <laughs> it's pretty fun. So um, talk to me a little bit about being a chief customer officer. What do you focus on and, and how do you help Tandem focus on customers more? So Tandem's mission is all about customers. Our whole purpose is how do we improve customers' relationship with their money? So customer has always been front and center. Um, that means my job is a lot of listening to customers. So we have a co-founder network of people who are helping us build the bank who we spend a lot of time listening to. My job is then translating that into what are we building? What are we building in our product? How are we communicating it? How are we building our back-end processes to make sure we actually deliver on that customer mission and the customer experience? So, so what form does that take? Is that sort of one-on-one -on -one interviews? Is it roundtables? How, how do you actually get those insights? Oh, it's everything. So we have this incredible network of about 10,000 co-founders who have given us so much time over the last couple of years. It's roundtable breakfasts where we'll pose them a challenge. We say, break it, build it. Um, let's break down something that banks do at the moment and figure out how we build it back up. It's spending time in people's homes. Obviously, when you're talking about money, it's quite a sensitive subject. And really to understand the stress and the concern that people feel about their money, they don't always want to do that in a group situation. So we go out and actually spend time with people. And then we have a hub where we'll fire questions all the time, like, would you prefer the login process to be this or this? Do you want your credit card to be green or blue? All of those questions that you will sit in any office across the country and have an argument with the person next to you about what the answer is, we'll go and ask our co-founders. Fantastic way of doing it. And what surprises have come up from those? Like, have you heard anything from the co-founder community that you haven't expected or just took you by surprise? I think to start with, the thing we found was that people don't feel that banking is broken because banks are doing anything dramatically wrong. We came into this thinking, oh, the whole industry is broken. People don't really feel like that. People actually feel fairly ambivalent towards their banks. So they don't say there's a problem with services, there's a problem with products. What they do say is, I don't understand my money. I don't think I'm making the right decisions. Money makes me feel stressed. So probably our, our very early finding and what really um, allowed us to clarify our mission was realizing that this is a much more fundamental problem. It's not about improving the delivery of products and services, it's about helping people manage the stress that goes with money. Pretty interesting insight and I think it, one of the things that strikes me is, is that insight then turns into product. So how does that process work for you? How do you go from help me manage my money to something that you put in front of those co-founders. What, yeah. what does that journey look like? It's taken us a long time and a lot of thinking and a lot of post-it notes. Um, 
But it's um, a case of trial and error. So we put a lot in front of co-founders that they say, this doesn't solve my problem. I remember one um, period where we thought, okay, admin is weighing people down. Let's figure out a way that they can get all their stuff in one place. And people are like, it doesn't, it doesn't really solve my problem. We threw that one out. In other cases, you'll put something in front of people that helps them make a decision and they go, yeah, this solves it. Feature by feature, problem by problem, try a bunch of things, pick the one that works best, try and improve it, and then try again. And really, we've just gone through that process constantly for the past couple of years. That trial and error thing is something that, having worked in big banks, I see far too little of. So it's an interesting insight there, I think. So how do you go through that trial and error, but then maintain that human touch with it? Is, is that something you strive for? And, and how do you do that? No, it is from a um, from a delivery of our services to customers. We massively strive for human touch. So, I think when I look across um, the challenger banking in the fintech landscape, there's um, some people who are concentrating very much on tech because they see it as an enabler. We focus very much on customer, and sometimes there's a technical solution. Sometimes there's a different solution, which might involve picking up the phone and speaking to someone. So actually, Tandem's reasonably unusual amongst our peers that we'll have a contact centre. You can talk to someone about your problem if you want to talk to them. Um, some of our ways in which we've designed our app feels much more conversational than functional because money is an emotive issue. And so actually an emotive solution is sometimes what we've decided is the best for that situation. Very interesting. So it's really supporting all kinds of generations and all kinds of needs and just getting touch with us any way you can. And how do you achieve that without branches? Can that be done? Is it? Can you make people feel like you're, you're always there, you're always available without that? We hope so. I mean, we obviously aren't live in market yet. So we come at this with an absolute belief that we can, but I couldn't give you a, a proof point. We think being able to pick up the phone is really important. We also think having a open doors to our co-founders is important. So you may have seen on the ground floor of this building, we have a working space. Entrepreneurs come and work there. Our co-founders come and spend time there. So while we don't plan ever to have branches, we hope people will feel that they can come and interact with us, um, even though we won't transact with them in a branch. It was, uh, I, for my sense, set up the Barclays Accelerator program, and one of the insights behind that was that getting into the head office of Barclays was pretty intimidating. Mm. You've got this giant lobby, and you've got these security guards, and how do you ever get past it? Where do you walk in to meet with somebody from a large bank? You, you kind of don't, whereas it seems like you guys have got a, an interesting branding way around that, just walk in the front door and come see us. So what does that mean for Tandem as a brand, and what does Tandem the brand mean to you, and, and what do you want it to mean? So Tandem, the brand to me, means working in partnership with our customers. It's where the name came from. Uh, anyone who started a company will realise that name is something that feels easy and takes forever. Um, but, so we thought very hard about what our name was, and we want people to feel like we're sitting alongside them, we're helping them manage their finances. So that really encapsulates why we've called ourselves Tandem. When you expand that to, therefore, what do we want the brand to mean? In five years, I want customers to say, my money's in better shape and I'm less stressed about my finances because um, because I used Tandem. That's what we want to achieve. That's very cool. So talk to me a little bit about customer acquisition. This is often held up as the problem for challenger banks and switching is low and buying customers is expensive. So how are you going to grow? Interesting question. So I think whenever anyone quotes switching stats, they tend to quote, have people switch their current account. 
Now, I personally don't really ascribe to the fact that banking has to exist in the product verticals it's always existed in. So the reason people don't switch current accounts is because it feels high admin and high stress. It doesn't mean that there aren't aspects of managing their financial life that they want a better solution to. And you can see the mass adoption of some fintechs really as evidence of that. So I don't really believe the base point that switching in is low in financial services. I think switching is low in current accounts. How we acquire customers, obviously, we need to prove that we can deliver value. So we have some co-founders that we hope will act as our early adopters. If we prove we can deliver value to them, then hopefully they'll tell their friends and they'll tell their friends. So for us, it's really about delivering on our promise as much as it is uh, marketing campaigns. So speaking of marketing campaigns, nice segue. Um, So where are you focusing your efforts on that? How are you getting your message out there? So at the moment, we're focusing a lot on working with our co-founders. We're focusing a lot on our social channels and on speaking to people like you. So actually trying to explain to people what Tandem is all about. Obviously, when you don't yet have a product in people's hands, you want to talk about what the brand stands for rather than being able to demonstrate that you can deliver on that mission. As we go over the next year, we're all really excited about being able to put product in people's hands. We want to get out and about, meet people, hear how much, how Um, useful they're finding it hopefully hero some of those people as we have with our co-founders and really continue to grow in that way ruth hancock thank you very much for your time no problem i hope you enjoyed these interviews with ricky and ruth Uh, if you have loved it as much as i did please leave us a review on itunes it really helps people to discover us and say hello at 11fs.co.uk if you want to hear more about what we do thank you